0: take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. A few weeks ago we started a study through the book of Revelation that uh, will encompass 27 sermons, yet going a little longer than 27 weeks. We'll intersperse some uh, psalms and another texts in our study. But this morning we come to our fourth in a series of 27 messages, and specifically our text is Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. If you've picked up a Bible from the side table, you'll find Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, beginning on page 1028. And I want to ask you one more time if you would stand to honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word this morning Revelation chapter 2. Verses eight through 11, hear the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write: the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Do you remain standing as we pray? Father, as has been prayed, I pray again. I ask for the filling and empowerment of your Holy Spirit. For God, there is much we desire to occur in this time, and I know my words will fall flat. On our hearts and our hearts will be hard outside of your spirit doing his work so would you make the words of my mouth powerful and would you make our hearts to be fertile soil would you let this to be a time in which the seed falls on fertile soil and brings forth fruit of obedience of God honoring God magnifying God glorifying worship in our lives we pray this in Jesus name Amen you may be seated I do not intend to do as you advise. Those words were spoken by an 86-year-old man named Polycarp on the final day of his life. He spoke them to some officials, some Roman officials, who were trying to get him to confess Caesar, the Roman emperor, as Lord. They wanted him to say Lord Caesar instead of Lord Jesus and offer up incense to Caesar as an act of worship. To him. Polycarp's answer, as I said, was, I do not intend to do as you advise. The year was 155 AD. Therefore, they took Polycarp and they led him into a stadium. Amidst the crowd that was cheering and and, and celebrating and chanting to see this encounter between Rome and this Christian. This 86-year-old bishop named Polycarp. Before the crowd, the proconsul asked him again, Confess Caesar as Lord. Curse Jesus Christ. Polycarp again refused, saying this, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So the proconsul said, Fine. We'll get wild beasts. They'll come out. They're going to rip you to shreds. Polycarp answered, send for them. He said, fine. If you don't despise these wild beasts, if you don't fear them, then then we'll consume you with fire. We'll set you on fire, you're going to burn alive. To which Polycarp answered, you threaten with fire that burns for an hour, and a little while is quenched, for you do not know the fire of the judgment to come. But why are you delaying? Bring what you will. And they did. They took wood, and they placed around him. As they were getting ready to tie his hands and bind him so that they might burn him at the stake, he said, there's no need to tie me. I'll stay here. And they set the wood on fire, and as it burned around him, to their satisfaction, not fast enough, they ultimately, after letting the fire burn around him, took a dagger and drove it through him, killing him as he sat there and his body was burned. It's a story that is both painful and edifying, I think, isn't it? Painful as we hear of the suffering of this 86-year-old man who is a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, edifying because of Christ's faithfulness to him. By his grace, helping Polycarp endure faithfully to uh, persevere until the end. And I'm drawn to stories like this. I I know on the one hand, they're just singular events in history. People die, people are born, people die, people are born. This just happens again and again and again. But in another sense, this is a story of a man, in the words of the author of Hebrews, a man of whom the world is not worthy. And as I find myself drawn to these kinds of stories, I just find my mind racing at different points. I want to know, what was going through his mind at this point? What was he thinking? Or what was he doing? Or what was he praying? And in the story of Polycarp, there's, there's one instant in which I really would like to know what he was thinking, what he was saying, what he was praying, what he was meditating on. It's when the Roman officials first came to get him. People had convinced Polycarp to move around a little bit, but ultimately when he knew they were after him, he says, let the Lord's will be done. So the the Roman officials come to him, and they're coming to get him so that they might ultimately put him to death, unless he would curse Jesus Christ, which he wasn't going to do. And so as these men are coming to get him, to put him to death, they come to him, and as he meets with them, he fixes for them and serves them a meal, which is what all of us would be prone to do when men come to kill us. <laughs> so he fixes them a meal, but, but he had a secondary aim, I think, in this. He fixes them a meal, serves them food, serves them drink, and he says, would you give me a little bit by myself to pray? And they will, because they have something to do, eat, drink. Be merry. So Polycarp then goes off. History tells us maybe for an hour or two, he's off by himself praying. Oftentimes so loudly they can hear him, but but not necessarily make out what he's saying. That's what I would like to know. I wish I could have been in that room to hear Polycarp, knowing his death is imminent. After 86 years of life, after years of faithful service to Jesus Christ, He knows his death is imminent. What does he pray at that point? What fills those hours? I would like to know what scripture is he meditating on? What comes to mind? What is strengthening him? As as I thought about it, I feel fairly certain that one of the texts he was meditating on was Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. I I say I feel fairly certain about that for, for two reasons. One, our text this morning addresses exactly what Polycarp is facing. Revelation two eight through eleven is written to people who are going to be taken captive, persecuted, and ultimately killed for their faith. That fits Polycarp. Jesus is exhorting them. This, this situation, if you were looking for some text to meditate on that addressed your situation specifically, this is it. But this is the second reason that I fear feel fairly certain Polycarp would have thought of this letter, of these words of scripture, have held these close to heart. It's because of this, this letter to the church in Smyrna, was written to Polycarp's church. He was the bishop of Smyrna. He was the one who who would oversee the church there. This letter, probably written about 60 years earlier, 60 years before Polycarp died, was written to the church of Smyrna. And we don't know much about Polycarp's early life. Tradition tells us he was most likely led to Christ even by the apostles themselves. They tell us that he was actually a disciple of John. The apostle. And if it was 60 years earlier than 86 minus 60, he could have theoretically been in this very church as a 26-year-old young man when this letter was first circulating around to the churches. News had been received that John on the island of Patmos had been given a revelation from Jesus Christ. And Jesus had addressed the seven churches in Asia Minor. One of them was the church at Smyrna. Perhaps Polycarp as a 26-year-old boy sit and heard the reading of this letter in which Jesus Christ in a personal letter to his church in Smyrna would say he knows of their tribulation, of their suffering, and tells them not to fear, though they're going to suffer and calls them to be faithful unto death. And if so, if this was what Polycarp was meditating on in that hour or two, can you imagine how comforting these words had to have been to him? I think they're to be equally as comforting to us. As I've said now for a couple of weeks, these letters, though they are written to historical churches, though Revelation 2, 8 through 11, is written to the historical church in Smyrna, the intention is not that it stop there, but also that it speaks to all the churches throughout all the ages, to all individuals. That's why every letter ends as this one does. Verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is, take these letters and apply them to ourselves. And so this morning, what I want to do is just uh, the truth that I think would have ministered so uh, powerfully and been such edify, so edifying and so comforting to the church of Smyrna, later to one of its members, its pastor, Polycarp, I think can be edifying and comforting to us as well. So I just want to make these points. And in an update of technology, this morning I think what's going to happen is I think as I make a point, I think it's going to appear on the screen. Oh, and there it is. Yes, see? Um, at this rate, next week we'll be broadcasting to troops around the world. No, no, no. I am, uh, I'm kidding. Some, some have asked. Uh, it would just help in taking notes. If as I made a point, it would be on there. So, so here we go. Here we go. We'll see. Holograms and all that right around the corner. Um, the first truth, then, that, that I think this text affirms is this. Christ knows understands, and has been where these believers are. Christ knows, understands, and has been where these believers are. This is also going to expose all my typos. My manuscripts are full of them. The point, I think, is made right at the outset of the letter, and it continues on. You'll remember every one of these seven letters Christ introduces himself most of the time by drawing an element from the vision that was in chapter 1. Do you remember this vision that that John saw? He heard a voice like the sound of a trumpet behind him. He turns around. He sees a vision of Christ and, and there's so many odd elements in it and Christ is saying things. And one of the things Christ says in that vision is that he's the first and the last, the one who died and who came to life. Well, that's how he introduces himself here. Specifically, Christ will introduce himself in such a way that's fitting for their context. So, uh, in this text, in which people are going to need to know he's in control, that he's died and is alive, he introduced himself, verse 8, the words of the first and the last. That's That's a symbol of being in control, who died and came to life. When you're going to call a people to be faithful, even to the point of death, it's good to remind them that the one who's telling them to do this is one who himself died and who came to life. So was right, out of the, right at the outset in verse 8, Christ is affirming, I know, I understand, and I have been where you are. But he says it more explicitly in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now that verse can be a bit confusing to us, can't it? Those who say they're Jews and are not. What is this even talking about? Well, the context that probably makes most sense of this is that in the Roman Empire, there was no such thing as religious freedom. You couldn't just worship whomever and whatever you will. You you better worship the Caesar. You better worship the emperor. You had to bow down to him. You had to to confess that, that he is Lord, which is why Polycarp would have been called upon to deny Christ, confess Caesar's Lord. Uh, and you had to burn incense to him as an offering, as if he's God. But there was an exception, funny enough, in the Roman Empire. They let the Jews be an exception. Not exactly sure why it might have been just for the for the history of the religion. Just as, as years had gone by, that you had a people who had who had uh, constantly held to, to Judaism and the, and the revelation of what God gave us in, in the Old Testament. So, so for some reason, I don't know exactly why, the Jews were given an exemption. They might have to come and burn something or do something. But but ultimately, they did not have to confess Caesar as Lord. They were given an exception. And what was nice for the Christians for a while is that the Roman Empire saw Christians as a sect of Jews, which is really nice because they were exempted as well. So so Christians didn't have to say Caesar as Lord. They didn't have to do that either. But as animosity grew... Between the Jews and the Christians, guess what the Jews would start doing? They would start outing the Christians. And they didn't even want to make a point to Rome. Hey, Rome! I know you're letting them be exempt from saying Caesar's Lord. You're letting them be exempt from, from worshiping him as a god because you think they're except of Jews. They're not. We're the true Jews. They're not Jews. And as they would say that, all of a sudden then Christians would come into the spotlight and it would be demanded of them that they worship Caesar or risk death. I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying here in verse 9. When He says, "Now I'll get to the second part of verse 9 here, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. That's to say that when the Jews say, we're the true Jews, these Christians aren't Jews... Jesus ironically is saying a true Jew is not one who is a Jew bodily or externally who can trace his DNA back to Abraham. A true Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly, who's an offspring of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. So what Jesus is saying is they're saying they're Jews, but they're not Jews. You're the true Jew. You're the true Israel. You're truly Abraham's offspring and God's people. What they are, Jesus says, is a synagogue of Satan. Let's just say they're working in conjunction with the enemy right now when they are fighting against my people. So Jesus says, then I know of your tribulation. You're going through suffering. You're impoverished. To be, to be outed, even if it didn't cost you your life, at least meant costing you a, a, a good business, a, a good vocation. So you have then, by virtue of just being Christians in the Roman Empire, then, a people who very well are suffering. We're being outed by the Jews who are impoverished, who are going through great tribulation. And Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know the slander that is coming against you. And as I said last week, I think this is more than just Jesus declaring his omniscience. Of course, Jesus knows all things. And yes, he begins every letter saying, I know. We'll see it uh, next week in verse 13. I know where you dwell. But this isn't just Jesus saying, I know all things, therefore I know this about you. This is Jesus speaking, I think, pastorally. I know, that is to say, I understand. I know. I understand what you're going through. Jesus wants them to know he's familiar with their struggles. He's, He's intimately acquainted with their struggles. You see, Jesus is one who took on flesh and dwelt among them. He's not only aware, but He's, as a high priest, able to sympathize with them in their weaknesses. Jesus says, I know what you're going through. If what they're going through as they face death leads them to cry, so that tears roll down their face and they groan before God in prayer, Jesus knows in the sense not only that He sees it, that he's familiar with it, but that he himself offered loud cries and supplication and tears in his life, right? If this situation brings such overwhelming sorrow that they feel that the sorrow is so heavy that it's killing them, Jesus knows that. He's the one who said to his disciples, I'm sorrowful even to the point of death. If... This costs them their lives so that they die, which it appears some of them will do. Jesus knows that as well. That's why he introduces himself as the one who died. Jesus knows what they have gone through. And yet he also knows more than they know. They look around and see their poverty. He says, I also know that you're rich. I see more clearly than you do. Your situation is better. Yes, you may not have goods in this life, but you've stored up for yourself treasure in heaven. And I think this truth then can be equally applied to us. We hit on it a bit last, uh, a couple weeks ago, but I want to say it again now. Jesus knows what you're going through. He understands. He's been there. This is one of the emphases of the Bible when it speaks of Christ becoming man, of Christ taking on flesh, is the fact that He can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He knows what you're going through. He knows your pain. He knows the heartache. He knows what it is costing you to obey Christ in your situation. So your lot in life, whatever it means to obey Christ, and whatever sacrifices you're undergoing, whatever pain it's causing you, Jesus is not far off from that. He knows. When you cry out to Him, here's what I'm going through. He not only already knows it, but He's familiar with it and understands because He has been where we are. And yet the text doesn't stop there, as if Christ is merely a sympathetic figure. We also see, second, Christ purposes suffering for the believer. Christ purposes suffering for the believer. That is, Jesus' letter doesn't merely say he's a sympathetic one with them, but that he's in control. Again, He introduces himself as the one who's in control, right? The one who is the first and the last. But listen to what he says in verse 10. I'll I'll show you why I've used these specific words. Jesus purposes suffering for the believer. In verse 10, he says this, "'Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested.'" And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus' exhortation, verse 10, is do not fear, but he doesn't follow it with what we typically say when we tell people not to fear. Usually when we tell people not to fear, it's because there's nothing to worry about, right? So I've used this example in the past. You tell your children not to fear monsters because they're not real. You tell people not to fear Minor surgeries, because there's not a great risk. Jesus is not here saying, don't fear, you're not going to be hurt. He says, don't fear, and then later talks about them dying. That sounds very fearful, something that we should be afraid of. But Jesus says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and I'm calling you to be faithful for ten days. That That is just a probably just a set period of time. A complete for time, maybe not literally ten days here, just a set period of time. This may be an allusion to the book of Daniel. Remember back in Daniel, uh, Daniel and, and the others were, were eating uh, vegetables. The king's uh, people were eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, and, and, and Daniel didn't want to do this. So Lord, so um, uh, the evil king tests them for ten days, a period of testing. At the end of ten days. Daniel's obedience proves to be a good thing and they're fit they're as strong as the others in fact stronger maybe this is an allusion to that a time of testing but but I don't think we should look at this and say this is necessarily literally 10 days just saying there's going to be a period the devil's going to throw you into prison you're going to have tribulation and ultimately some of you are going to die now you could take that and say this is Jesus' way of saying Satan is out of control We could read this text and think, man, we have a formidable enemy and there is no one who controls him. But I don't think that's what we're supposed to see from this text. In fact, I think we're supposed to read these verses and say, even though Satan is going to bring suffering into their lives and Jesus gladly credits it, the devil's going to throw you into jail, into prison. I think we're supposed to see in these verses that Jesus is the one purposing this. that Jesus is in control of what's going on. I say that for a couple of reasons. One is that Jesus has already introduced himself who's in control of all things, right? He's the first and the last. The first and the last means there's not a second of history over which Jesus does not reign. What's happened in the past, he was there, he's over it. What's going to happen in the future, all the way to the end, he's there and he's over it. He's in control of all things. So them being thrown into prison, even though Satan's doing it, Jesus is not saying, Satan's out of my control. He's saying, I'm in control, here's what's going to happen. The second reason I think we can say that Jesus is purposing their suffering is because he tells them what Satan's going to do. One of the things that God consistently does, especially in the book of Isaiah to show his control and his power over all things, is he predicts the future. He's predicting the future not because he's saying, I've looked down the scope of time, I've seen what's going to happen, let me tell you. He predicts the future because he's in control of the future. If you're the one making pulling the strings, you can predict what's going to happen. So when Jesus tells them in verse 10, here's what you're about to suffer, here's what Satan's going to do, it's Jesus' way of saying... He's not doing anything that I don't have control over. In fact, let me tell you. Here's exactly what he's going to do. There's something Jesus has done in the past to demonstrate his control. Remember he did this to Peter? Peter, behold, Satan's demanded that he might sift you like wheat. Right? He tells Peter that he might know he's in control. Specifically, we read in the rest of the Bible that Satan operates only on the basis of Permission with God. Satan operates only on the basis of permission with God. Right? There's never a time in which God sits there and says, wow, I did not know Satan was going to do that. Great move. Or he's got the upper hand on me. Right? It never happens. In fact, in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, the text I just quoted, when, when Jesus says to Peter, behold, Satan demanded that he might have you, that he might sift you like wheat, you see, what Jesus is saying is, Satan asks for permission. Sure, you could translate the word ask permission or demand. But to demand is to ask permission, right? My children sometimes might make demands. But the reason they're even saying anything to me is because they know I have to grant them permission. And which I then tell them, don't make demands. <laughs> That's exactly, though, what's going on here, right? Satan has to ask. You Remember the story of Job? Satan, you know, if only you would do this. So God says, fine, you can do that, but not that. Well, if you would let go of that, okay, fine, you can do that, but not that. But at every point, God's in control. Well, the same purpose is in here. Jesus is the one who is the first and the last. So, so though Satan is going to throw them to prison, where they're going to eventually, some of them die, this is not Jesus' way of saying, I have no control. This is Jesus' way, of saying, I think, of saying to them, I'm purposing this. I have a purpose in your suffering. In fact, when you go on through the book of Revelation, just turn over just a few chapters to chapter 6. In chapter 6, we get even a clearer picture of Jesus' control, though His people are dying. In Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, we read this. When He opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. That is, he saw these martyrs. Verse 10, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood of those who dwell on the earth are crying out for justice? How long, Lord, till you bring justice? Verse 11, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You see the way that reads? Who were to be killed? That is to say, Jesus has a plan. And in His plan, the one who is the first and the last, there are a certain number of His people who are to be martyred. And what Jesus says to the martyrs is, Not so fast, my plan isn't done. Now, is it proper to say, well, Satan's out there killing and destroying? Yes, Satan's throwing in a prison. But it's always on a permission basis. So then, if Jesus is utterly in control, so that nothing happens outside of His control, and yet Satan is bringing suffering in the lives of believers, how do we square this? We square it this way. Jesus, who has all control, Grants Satan permission to bring suffering even to his own people because Jesus has a purpose for that suffering. You see it with Paul, don't you? Remember the thorn in the flesh? Jesus is in control, Yep, Paul is a thorn in the flesh. What does Paul say of that thorn in the flesh? It is a messenger from Satan sent to buffet me. Whatever the thorn in the flesh is, we don't know. Paul says it's from Satan and it is tormenting me. And yet, why does Paul say that it was given to him? In order that I might not exalt myself. Satan never works to the end of keeping you humble. Satan's purpose are never to keep you from exalting yourself. So when Paul says, this messenger of Satan, whatever it is in my flesh, the reason I have it is so that I might not exalt myself, but I might remain humble, what he's saying is, Jesus Christ has a purpose for my suffering. I think we conclude the same thing here. Jesus Christ tells them, you don't have to fear what you're about to suffer because I'm in control and I have a purpose for it. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. It'll last for 10 days. You'll have tribulation. Some of you are going to die. But the one telling you this is the first and the last. The one who died and came to life. Now, take those two, the first two images then we've seen, and put them together. Jesus knows and understands and has been through what you're going through. He knows you're suffering. He's not unacquainted with loud cries and tears. He knows it. You cry, you ache, you hurt because of what you're going through as you're trying to obey Christ. He sympathizes with you and your weakness, He knows it. He's your high priest. But at the same time, he's in control of all things. He's not simply the sympathetic figure, though he is that or sympathetic high priest. He's in control. And he has a purpose for your suffering. Yes, it is his intention, his allowance that this suffering comes into your life because he has a great purpose He's going to honor Himself, to glorify Himself, to do you good. In fact, He promises us everything in your life is to work to the end of being for your good, of conforming you to the image of Christ. The first two truths then that that we see in this text is that, that Jesus knows, He understands, He has been where we are. And then second, that Jesus purposes, that Christ purposes suffering for the believer. Well, then we might ask, well, if it's His purpose for us, what's our responsibility? What do we do? We know He's working good. He has a purpose. He has a plan. Well, what are we to do? He tells us. Third, Christ commands believers to be faithful in the midst of our suffering. Christ commands believers to be faithful in the midst of our suffering. Jesus does have an expectation for us. We do have marching orders from our captain. Polycarp knew exactly what Jesus was telling him to do when he faced the Roman proconsul and was being questioned in that stadium. Jesus had told him. It's there at the end of verse 10. And through verse 11. Be faithful unto death. He had said it earlier in there as well that you may be tested for ten days, you'll have tribulation. This is going to be a period of tribulation. You're going to go through this. My commandment to you is that you be faithful. The Lord's purpose in allowing suffering in your life is not because He wants to destroy you so that you might be condemned. That's not His purpose. His purpose is that He might demonstrate your faithfulness through this time of testing that they were going to face, through the time of testing your face, the, the purpose is that your faithfulness might rise to the top in order that it might abound to the glory of Christ. This is what he's doing. He's doing this for his glory and his strength. Following Jesus may kill you, but that's what he commands. Be faithful, even if it cost your life. Now this is very counter, I've noted this a couple of times, but the reason I bring it up again is because it just has become so clear to me just over time, I've not lived very long, in the short time I've lived, it's become clear to me, this is a continual tactic of Satan. There is a continual tactic of Satan that says God's will for you is that you have peace and happiness. It's just a tactic that's continually used. And sometimes we say it in a way that's not very destructive, I don't think, but we acknowledge it, don't we? We'll say something like, this was obviously God's will because it was so smooth, right? And I went to take this job, and it obviously must have been God's will because everything just worked out so smoothly. There were hiccups in the road. I'm not discounting that. That may very well be God's will. But you cannot discern God's will because everything always goes smoothly. In fact, if you read the Bible, you might say, this was obviously God's will because it brought me great heartache. This was God's will because it felt like everybody was opposing me on every side. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Read about their lives and look which one it looks like he loves. Right? Jacob goes through a lot. Esau shows up and he's got all this riches and blessing. God says, that one suffering, that's the one I love. Right there. Right? And it can be, I think, especially a temptation for us when we're faced with sin that we want, right? we're not innocent bystanders with sin. We just dive right into it. When we see sin that we want, that we want badly, sometimes because sin is deceiving, we go into self-justification mode with it. So that we might say something like, man, surely... Surely God wants me to be happy. Surely God understands how hard my marriage is. Surely God understands how little money I'm making, and surely He wouldn't mind if I cheat on my taxes, right? He, he, he wouldn't mind if I if He understands I just can't endure this marriage. It's hard. Or a thousand other scenarios, right? When I mean, we do this, don't we? He doesn't understand how how difficult this is, that that I just need to feed my lust a little bit here. He doesn't, you know, God would want me to to be able to have things that I can afford, and so I'm I'm not going to be as generous with my money and give toward the work of his kingdom. There could be all kinds of self justification that says things like, Jesus doesn't want us to have to go through struggle. But here's the reality from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Jesus wants you to be faithful. In obeying him even if it kills you. There it is. Jesus wants you to be faithful in obeying him, even if it kills you. You're in a marriage, and you think, I just this feels like it's killing me. Be faithful. Obedience in the workplace is hard because everybody around you is not working as unto the Lord. And you say, I feel like just surviving and continuing to obey in this environment is killing me. Be faithful. Jesus tells these people not, hey, let me tell you where to find a hidden key so you can get out of prison. You're going to be thrown in prison. You're going to die. Now here's what you're going to do. Be faithful even to that point that you die. Right? Following Jesus may kill you, but that doesn't alter His command." Be faithful to Jesus even if it kills you. He commands us to be faithful even in the midst of our suffering. So in whatever situation you're in right now, here's his command. You don't have to spend a lot of time trying to think through it. If if God clearly reveals what obedience looks like in your life, then do it, no matter what it costs. For Polycarp, it meant saying, I do not intend to do as you advise And confess Caesar is Lord, even though I realize that's going to cost me my life. For you, I don't know what it means, but be faithful unto death. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't merely say, here's my command, be faithful unto death. He offers us this blessing of promise. Four, Christ promises the richest of blessings to those who faithfully endure Christ promises the richest of blessings to those who faithfully endure. You see, Jesus very well could have simply said, Be faithful unto death. The one telling you is the first and the last. Right? I'm the king. I'm God. I'm in control of everything. I'm your Lord. I'm telling you, be faithful unto death. But he doesn't stop there. In his compassion for us, in his love for us, in his care for us, he says, I want to tell you what's going to await you once you're faithful unto death. And here's what he says. He says, End of verse 10 be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life he who has an ear to hear let him hear he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the church is the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death Jesus says if you're faithful unto death I want you to know something the richest blessing awaits you this crown of life what is that some kind of extra reward no I think it's just a metaphor for eternal life If you're faithful to me, even to the point of death, you are not going to regret it. Jesus says, because you're going to have eternal life. In fact, he says, if you overcome, which in this context, right in our last letter, meant if you overcome, meaning repent of your lovelessness, return to it. To to, to, uh, being loving uh, toward God and your brother. In this context, overcoming means being faithful even in the face of death. Jesus says if you overcome, you'll not be hurt by the second death. Those who deny Christ will be hurt by the second death, and they won't have eternal life. Those who are faithful to Christ will not be hurt by the second death, and will have eternal life. I don't know if I said that clearly, but let me say it this way. There's a choice here, right? Right? We can use Polycarp as our historical example, but it would have been true of any of these believers in Smyrna at this time, and it's true of you as well. But let's just illustrate it with Polycarp in this situation. You know the setting. Before the proconsul. He He could have cursed Christ, confessed Caesar as Lord, not being faithful to his Lord, and there would have been immediate blessing for him. He would have been spared immediate death. And he would have been able to keep on living. But there would have been ultimate consequences. For him to deny Christ and say, Jesus is not my Lord, would have been his way of saying, I am wanting to face the second death and not have eternal life. For for anyone uh, professing Christ, of course that was not going to happen with Polycarp. He He was God's child but there are a number of people who profess Christ. And it's in circumstances of life that our faithfulness is tested. And then whatever our professions are, they're just that, professions. right? Our lives reveal whether those professions are true and accurate. And so to the Church of Smyrna, anyone at this point professing Christ could have been faced with a dilemma. Don't be faithful to Christ. You'll have immediate blessings. Life and not dying immediately, but there'll be long-term cost. Hell and eternal life not being yours. And on the other hand, you could be faithful to Christ and there would be immediate loss. To those in Smyrna, to be faithful to Christ means they were going to die. Their life was going to be taken from them, but there was rich blessing. They were going to have eternal life and they would not be hurt by the second death. They did not have to fear hell. And so this is then where it stands with us I said in the first week the book lays out fairly clearly in a very simplistic way identify with the enemies of Christ identify with the beast and deny the Lord and you'll be spared the wrath of his enemies the wrath of the beast but you'll taste the wrath of the lamb or identify with the lamb confess him as your Lord be faithful to him and you will be spared the wrath of the lamb But in this life, you'll know the wrath of his enemies, of the beast. But the message of Revelation is, you do not want to see the wrath of the Lamb. In this text, Jesus tells those in Smyrna, you're going to suffer. You're going to see the wrath of Rome. But if you're faithful until the end, you will not see my wrath. But you'll have eternal life. Can you imagine then how comforting... This text must have been to an 86-year-old Polycarp in 155 A.D. If indeed this was the text he was meditating on, as he sat there for those two hours, I don't know, perhaps with tears running down his face, perhaps groaning unto the Lord, he was reminded from the Lord Jesus Christ, Polycarp, I know exactly what you're going through. I know your suffering. I know your tribulation. I know what's going to face you. He would have been reminded that Christ is a purpose, that he's in control of a suffering. Polycarp, I know what they're going to do. They're going to take you down to the theater. They're going to threaten you with beasts, and when that doesn't work, they're going to burn you alive. When you're not burning fast enough, they're going to stab you with a dagger, kill you. It's okay. I also am the one who died, and I'm the one who was raised. You're okay. Polycarp uh, would have been reminded in this text of what Jesus Christ was telling him to do. Lord, what am I to do? Be faithful unto death. And then finally, Polycarp would have known it's all worth it. The reason he would say, you don't have to tie my hands, I'll stay right here, is because he knew what awaited him as he was faithful unto death would be eternal life. And no fear of being hurt by the second death. And so I then want to encourage you to be comforted with these same truths. I don't know what situation you're in. I don't know any of us that are in a situation similar to Polycarp but in that many of us are encountering suffering. And we need to know that Christ knows our suffering, that He's a purpose in our suffering, that His call to you is to be faithful. And when we are struggling to be faithful, we need to hold out to ourselves the promise of eternal life, the promise that is ours, because God the Son took on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross paying for our sins. God raised Him on the third day. If your faith is in Christ, be faithful and do not fear death and hell. If your faith is not in Christ this morning, you're not a believer, then it means that you're not be persecuted following Jesus Christ because you're not following Him. It may seem as a great place in life that you don't want to give up many things. You don't want to go through the sacrifice of what it means to be a Christ follower. But I want to say to you this, if you're not a believer, the wrath you will face in the second death, in hell, the lake of fire that will torment forever, is much worse than anything we could dream of in this life. But if you will place your faith in Jesus Christ, turn from your sins and place your faith in Him, you can have eternal life. If you're not a believer this morning, please place your faith in Christ. If you'd like to talk to me or or somebody else here, we'd love to talk to you about coming to Christ. If you are a believer this morning, we have an opportunity every week to declare we're continuing in faith. We have an opportunity every week to say, this day, by God's grace, I'm faithful in confessing that Jesus Christ is my Lord. And we do that by drinking this cup and by eating this bread. So we're going to take a moment of silence. During that moment of silence, the ushers are going to come forward, the musicians are going to be put in place, and then we're going to all come to the table distributing the cup, distributing the bread to everyone. And then as we eat the bread together, it is as if we are Polycarp, standing in that theater saying, we confess Jesus as our Christ because He died for us. We confess Jesus as our Christ, our Lord, alone, for He shed His blood for us. So let's take a moment of silence as we prepare to come to the table and then we'll proclaim our faith in Christ together by eating and drinking.